This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology by Martha Elias Downey. This book invites readers to expand their theological, spiritual, and relational horizons by sidestepping the notions of hierarchy and verticality. Go Wide employs the lens of spaciousness to explore biblical stories, theological concepts, and the nature of God, showing how biblical narratives often disrupt the status quo. If you are looking for an accessible, inclusive, fresh take on an ancient course of study, pick up Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology, now available on Amazon. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're talking some more about Emily Dickinson, this time presenting a poem that explores the idea of Sabbath and challenges the idea that worship always takes place in a church. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. How are you this week? I'm pretty good. I'm in the Chicago area, as you know, and it's snowing and snowing and snowing. And all the people in my life are so unhappy about this snow. And I'm a snow lover. So I'm just a, uh, I'm an outlier. So whenever people nice. are complaining, enjoying. I'm enjoying it. Whenever people complain yeah. about the weather, I feel self-conscious because what I want to say is, isn't it beautiful? And I just love it. And it makes me feel like such a dope. No, I actually think that's great. I'm a little jealous, to be honest. (laughs) Listeners, we've got a deceptively simple poem to share. And before I share it, I do want to mention there are a couple of words that were very common, I think, in the 19th century, but we don't run across them as much. So I just thought I'd do a couple of definitions before reading the poem. Dickinson mentions a rare kind of a songbird in this poem. It's called a bobolink. I looked up how to pronounce it, and some people say bobolink. Some people say bobolink. I'm going to say bobolink. So it's a kind of a blackbird. I think it's relevant that the bird's feathers are black and white because there's also a fair amount of church language in here. And one bit of the church language that's in here is a surplicha. Or surplusa? How do you say that, Jennifer? Do you know how to say that? Surplus. Surplus. I. I surplus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm. I guess I'm imagining I'm back in Latin class saying surplus. Right, but you're not. I'm not in Latin. You're class. in the, the English drawing from the oh, Latin. Thank yep. you. Thank you. So yeah, the surplus, which is the white linen vestment that goes over a priest's long robe. So the black and white of the vestments of the priest that are evoked and the black and white of the bird. They sort of work together in the poem. So I thought I would mention that. There's also chorister. Probably everybody knows what a chorister is, but we usually say choir person. Someone in the choir. So chorister. And then sexton, honestly, I I had to look it up because 
I thought a sexton was somebody who steered by the stars, but it can also be a person <laughs> who takes care of the church or maybe rings the church bells. So exactly. Yeah. Bobolink, chorister, surplice, sexton. They're yeah. all in there. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Jennifer, anything you want to add by way of introduction before I read the poem? No, except no, but yes, I'm going to. Oh, yay! Um, <laughs> it's all about context. I, I was just going to say, yes, right. Well, we're doing something a little different because we're kind of drawing vaguely from biblical texts today. And I'm also going to refer to some lyrics from one of my favorite songwriters, uh, Alanis Morissette, as after we get to discussing the poem and its its connection to biblical ideas. So a little different today, but I think it'll be fun conversation. All things in the mix. Yeah, all things in the mix. Okay, here we go. I think everybody knows, because I think I mentioned it on other episodes, that Emily Dickinson doesn't actually title her poems. So everyone refers to each poem by the first line of the poem. So I'll read it as though it were a title, but I will mention that that's not a title that Dickinson came up with. It's just how we designate the poems. Some keep the Sabbath going to church. Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in a surplice. I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. There's one other thing I wanted to mention about the surplus, and that is that it tends to be, there's a lot of material. So a person wearing one could put their arms up and it, there would be kind of a long mm. droop. So it kind of looks like wings. Mm. So thus her comment with that, some keep the Sabbath in a surplus. I just wear my wings is a nice um, play with the visual there that you might miss if you weren't aware. Thank you. That because yeah, that's not yeah. how I was picturing the surplus, actually, mm, okay. having grown up mm-hmm. Catholic. Okay. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So how do you like the poem, Jennifer? I think it's one that resonates with you, right? It is. Mm. It is. I do. I do like this. And there are lots of pieces about it that are, I think are really just sweet in that she has a lot packed into a line or two. And the thing that I most want to highlight right now is the idea of Sabbath itself is actually about rest. And often, at least in my childhood, going to church was a was a bit of an ordeal, not a rest. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and so there's an interesting play I think she's she has going on here about for her, staying at home or outside is actually restorative. It's actually a rest for her in a way that perhaps being around people, especially for those who are introverted, right? It's actually this requirement of being present with the community and all of that can actually be a drain on some people. Just kind of a thought that I have when focusing on that word, the Sabbath, right? Keeping the restful day. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. that that's my New Year's resolution to rest more, more rest, more mindful 
rest. Nice. And I remind myself of different religious traditions designate different days as Sabbath. And I observe a Sabbath on a Sunday. And I have to remind myself that I'm resting because the constant inner chatter that comes up for me is, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And I have to answer myself back, I'm resting. (laughs) I'm resting. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to say that one thing I love about this poem is how it locates uh, not just rest in the act of, in Japan, they call it forest bathing, the act of being outside, enjoying the natural world, enjoying the trees, enjoying the birds, is the idea of the sacredness of nature and the idea that connecting with a sense of the sacred may happen as easily outdoors as it might in church and for some people better. That's right. You know, I when you first brought this poem to my attention, you know, the all the different conversations over the over the centuries that we were briefly exposed to in seminary, you know, passed through my mind and this conversation about whether or not a person can actually know God through the natural world. And there have been some philosophical debates around these kinds of ideas that I can enjoy those debates, but that's not really where my mind is most of the time. So it's a, it's a longstanding conversation for people, yeah. right? Do we need to be in certain spaces that we've designated as sacred and we're, you know, we've created these beautiful spaces, we can control what happens within them. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But, you know, we're doing certain things and rituals and routines that people can find helpful, right, to, to connect to a routine as a way of grounding themselves within this community. You know, I think there's some interesting things to in terms of what that side of things, the practices, the rituals, the imagery, the scent, the, the flourishes of all kinds. I think there's something very important about that for many people. Yeah, I do agree with that. I never resonated with the sacred spaces, the church spaces of my childhood, and we weren't in them very much. Church going was not a huge part of my family life. We would go on holidays, but neither of my parents were active churchgoers, and there was never any sense of pressure on any of the kids to go to church. Do you want to go? Do not want to go. It just wasn't a big deal. And I think that left me really free to get really excited about church going as an adult because I am an avid church goer and I really like it a lot. And I remember I had the great fortune once of hosting the poet Diane DePrima, a beat poet. A lot of people aren't familiar with the women beat poets, but, and, and Diane has passed since, but I remember talking with her and we were having a conversation about creativity and I asked her if she had advice for a creative who wanted to just maximize their creativity. And I remember she said, and she's a Buddhist practitioner, and she said, it helps if you take the same seat. And I thought attending church can work like that for some people. It's a way of taking the same seat, going to the same place. It can work like that 
Outdoors also. I have certain places that I go to outdoors, a certain rock by the lake, a certain tree in the forest. I have places that I go to when I want to settle myself and calm myself and I when I want to tap into that interior voice that can guide me in difficult situations. So whether it's at a church or whether it's at a special outdoor place, I think there there is something about routine and ritual, as you're saying, that can help people experience and explore the sacred in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and the first time I heard that last line, the first stanza, right? Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a boba link for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. I, you know, I had immediately popped what popped into my mind was there are a couple places on a trail that I really like in Portland. And I would try to be on that trail every weekend. And there are certain places on it that, especially in the spring and summer, you're just so aware of the canopy and it's kind of hallowed out in this one space. So it's not just fully packed with trees, but it's open. And then you've got this magnificently high, you know, ceiling essentially from the canopy. And it is, it's like a cathedral. When you walk around, turn the bend and it's this open space Mm. that's gently, you know, outlined for you. And so the sense of awe, the sense of that sacred space is created Mm. in nature that way. And I've been to a handful of the big cathedrals in Europe and North America, and some of those are really, really beautifully astounding in terms of the sense of awe, right? And I yes, I do think that people over the centuries have tried to create that for, for others and have done a really amazing job, right? Creating a space that brings you into that sense of awe. And yet it can happen in more simple ways as well, right? An orchard for a dome instead of the tolling of the bell for church, which is another regular part of people's lives, right? For her, her little sexton, the bobolink sings, right? Yeah. Two different ways of tapping into, in a sense, a similar kind of restorative space, sense of awe, sense of this is precious or this is valued. This is valuable space to sit in. I appreciate you calling out that particular stanza. And I want to remind us that we're sitting here in 2024 (laughs) hearing about her saying, hey, I think I connect to God and hear God better outside than in a church. And that's not (laughs) that's not that big a deal to say in 2024. But I just want to remind everyone that Emily Dickinson's dates are 1830 to 1886. So in the in the 19th century, <laughs> that was an astonishing thing to say. Uh, At least what here. What do you mean? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, she lived in Amherst. She lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. When you were speaking earlier about philosophical traditions that recognized the sacredness of nature, I was thinking of the American transcendentalists. And Emily Dickinson is not typically classed with them. That's not really how she's categorized. But people like Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote very eloquently about their sense of the sacred in nature. And she was soaking up, Emily Dickinson was soaking up that cultural atmosphere. 
Yes, or even reflecting it. Her, like part of me was like, mm, she might have just been contributing to it and not not necessarily learning from them. And actually, I don't have any of the. I didn't look up any of the philosophers that I was thinking of. But I was when I referenced the whole natural theology element. I wasn't thinking of the transcendentalists. I was actually mm-hmm. thinking of those oh, who okay. who raise a challenge to that as a possible or legitimate way to know God or to experience the holy or the sacred, which is part of why I was like, oh, don't really want to get into that. Because even those theologians were trying to direct to a particular way of experiencing God. So much oh. earlier. Much earlier think, than the transcendentalists. Yeah. I think I would have a hard time being a good sport with those philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> theologians. They were theologians. theologians so I was okay. supposed to honor and respect them, you know. Yes. I'm yes. with you, though. I'm with yeah. you, Jane. Uh, we try to hear all points of view, I guess, but some are. Some points of view are harder than others. All right. <laughs> let's, let's go to a break. Let's hear from some of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Listeners, welcome back. Welcome back. Jennifer, I was wondering, I know that you have a song that you want to share, and I wonder if you would like to tell us a little bit about it and read whatever you want from it and just share a bit about why this came up for you when we were reading the Dickinson poem. Absolutely. Yes. So the song is Citizen of the Planet by Alanis Morissette. It's from the album Flavors of Entanglement. And the reason that I enjoy this song, well, there are many reasons I enjoy this song. I just like her sound. But I think she's very thoughtful and very interconnected in her thinking and her speaking about the world. But what struck me the first time I heard this song was how many elements of, at least from my Christian upbringing, my Christian experiences, how many elements of a Christian setting she is offering a counter to or a reframing to or an alternative to. And I don't think she's, I don't think it's in your face. In fact, I did this for a couple years when I was teaching full time at Greensboro College. At the end of the year, after going through two semesters of intros to the two testaments, I would ask students to look for anything in her lyrics that is a challenge to the typical biblical worldview the ideas about life in the world that you do see in the Bible, how many could you find that she's actually offering an alternative to? And in my context, as well as from my my upbringing, to suggest that this alternative way of thinking is legitimate is was really startling for a lot of my students because they had they had internalized so deeply the way to think about the world using the Christian Bible. So that's why I just thought it was so fun. And we had a good time talking about it most of the time. So I'm not going to, I don't want to read the whole song, um, all of the lyrics, but there are several lines that I think are really helpful. I'm skipping down to, I think it's the third stanza or so. I'm a citizen of the planet. My president is Quan Yin. My frontier is on an airplane. My prison's homes for rehabilitating. The president is Kuan Yin. That's a Buddhist representation of justice, essentially, to cut, you know, get to the point on that. 
my frontiers on an airplane as compared to the horizon by foot, right? So she's globally speaking. But her prisons are homes for rehabilitating, not for punishing. So many pieces to this that flip the way many of us are taught to think, right? Eye for an eye versus restorative and addressing the problems, right? The next verse, I fly back to my nest. So I wait. My yearn for home is broadened. Patriotism expanded by callings from beyond. So challenging this country or line confinement of this is all I can be, you know, supportive of my people. So I pack my things, nothing precious, all things sacred. And honestly, that's one of the, that in the next line down um, that I've highlighted, probably what struck me the most. Because when I think about the biblical traditions, I think of, in particular within the Hebrew Bible, we have lots of content devoted to describing the sacred space and the, the garments, the things that you put in the sacred space to make it holy, and that these things are so holy, and that this item over here is so holy that you can't touch it or you'll die, you know? And this trying to create a sense of how important and trustworthy our God is or whatever, right? So trying to instill in people a sense of reverence. But for me, at least in this century, it reads so much more like fearfulness as compared to a different kind of a more invitational reverence. So when she says all things sacred, nothing's precious. Everything is sacred. Oh, that felt like this woo different way of thinking about life. And that is common in other countries and other contexts. Of course, I'll, I'll just highlight one or two more lines. And this in the next stanza, I am a citizen of the planet. My laws are all of attraction. It's compared to the biblical laws. My punishments are consequences separating from source the original sin. And that's when we could spend a long time talking about, I think, right, in terms of what she's playing with there in terms of the concept of original sin and the history within patriarchal community, well, patriarchal cultures to blame <laughs> um, as if Eve really did bring sin into the world, which you know. So anyway, so just that that line in and of itself was delightful to me. And the final two lines that I really enjoy, I'm guarded by the angels and my body guides the direction I go in. That line. And then also, I'm a citizen of the planet, my favorite pastime edge stretching. Besotten with human condition, these ideals are born from my deepest within. And Again, there's a lot in all of in all of these lines, but instead of thinking of the human condition as terrible, besotten with it is kind mm. of lovely, right? Yeah. I don't like the way people talk about human condition like it's an illness. And then <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. then my body guides the direction, not this God that I've been taught to fear or whatever. And the ideals come from my deepest within, which is really actually evolutionarily speaking is where our ideals come from instead of this out the source outside of us that's speaking to us and rah, rah, rah. so i just find it delightful <laughs> and it and in in a general sense is i think doing something similar to what emily dickinson is doing with this poem right and she just does it much more succinctly perhaps 
So what do you think, Jean? Do you have any thoughts in response to the lyrics? Yeah, yeah I like <laughs> to extend this yeah. inquiry into where does the sacred live and how is the sacred embodied? I'm really focused on the line, I pack my things, nothing precious, all things sacred, just the idea of all things being sacred. And as you know, I spent the majority of my adult church life in Quaker meetings. And Quaker meetings, Quakers do not practice sacraments, except for marriage. And there are things that we do when someone dies. But there isn't baptism in Quaker tradition, and there isn't communion, no confirmation. And I actually really like taking communion. I don't have anything against communion or baptism. I think they're, they're lovely rituals, and I've participated in both of them. So I don't have anything against them. But I also really, really love the Quaker principle that all of life is sacred. So we don't try to separate out particularly sacred acts, that every action we undertake is part of the sacred. At the same time, we are embodied creatures. So things like sacraments and sacramental rituals, sacred spaces like churches are designed to help embodied creatures attempt to relate to, I think actually to use Alanis Morissette's language, embodied creatures find ways to relate to the deepest within. Another name for the deepest within could be God, or for some people that's, that's the name of the deepest within. I think the closest thing I've heard in biblical language is still small voice. You'll hear a still small voice. And I think sacred spaces like churches or sacraments are ways to try to help us because we're in such a <laughs> now I now I'm thinking of a Madonna song. We are living in a material <laughs> world and I am a material girl. So we we're embodied, right? And we're living in a material world and so we have a tendency to try to represent the sacred either through architecture or sacramental rituals or whatever it might be. I, I wanted to share with you that I, when I go into really ornate cathedrals, I can appreciate them. I, I am amazed by Gothic architecture. I, I do appreciate it. And at the same time, what I relate to or think about most in those spaces isn't God or the sacred, it's wealth. <laughs> I always think about, man, you know, the amount of like labor that it took to amass the the wealth and the materials to put this together. Yes. So it, it doesn't, it, like different spaces evoke that sense of the sacred for different people, right? We don't exactly. all respond in the same way. Exactly. And to go back to Quaker tradition for a minute, like one phrase that one of the founders of Quaker tradition used was no cross, no crown. There's no, there's no cross in a Quaker meeting house. Right. So we don't attempt to picture the Godhead in the way, say, that the, that a Catholic church might, or even a um, Protestant church, like Protestants are more restrained in yes. terms yes. of the way yes. they. That's, 
kind of approach architecture and and ornament and so forth. And yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I since our listeners couldn't see that I was kind of cracking up while you were talking about that, I wanted to say I fully agree with you about the wealth aspect of the yeah. creation of all these magnificent cathedrals. I don't actually yeah, I'm not I don't enjoy them in the way that they intended. Let's put it that way. Yes, that's right. That's right. But, you know, even as I'm sitting here just mulling all of this over with listening to you talk and thinking about the poetry or the lyrics and, you know, there's a part of me as a biblical scholar that wants to point out that within biblical traditions and storylines and narratives, whichever way you want to think about it, it really did matter. You know, they were there were spaces where it was designated, this is where you go to worship the God. And if you're not, if you're creating your own t- version of it, even in your own space, instead of coming to this one, you're out of bounds. You know, that's a part of the biblical storyline. So that when there are people, and we even see it carrying over into the Newer Testament, right? If, and for reasons I don't want to get into right now, but but my point here is for those who think about their traditions this way, right, the proper places to worship, I feel like giving a nod, at least, to the fact that, you know, that is, that is a standard that's set for people according to biblical texts and storylines. So that, you know, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But I think it's helpful to know that it's, there's a part of tradition, the Christian tradition, Jewish traditions, that have said that there are spaces that are holy or set apart for this for particular reasons. And so, yes, there's all kinds of debates and fights have gone down over the centuries about, you know, one of the big councils was about whether or not images were okay or allowable, right, in churches, the iconoclast councils, people being excommunicated, all kinds of things happening over visuals, right? Fierce. (laughs) Fierce. Right. So uh, it's, in, including deadly sometimes, right? It, yeah, fierce, that's what I, yes. Fierce to the point of deadly exactly. fighting about so, that issue yes. of, yeah. Yes. So that, as you said, for Emily Dickinson to make such a, what we might relate to comment, it really was a bigger deal for her yes. than it is for us. Right. It has been a big deal over the centuries. And I think yes. that's, an, I wanted to note that however playful you and I are being with this and respectful, of yeah, yeah. what people find useful. I just want to let listeners know this is has been a highly charged topic subject yes. over the centuries and grateful to be in the time I'm in. <laughs> yes. Right. We have more freedom. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, but what a lovely little that. poem. Yeah. yeah. What a lovely reframing of things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very freeing. Yeah. All right. Anything else you wanted to add? I think this has been a fun little exchange about some insightful and cleverly worded, delightfully worded phrases and word pictures. Me too. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for joining us. It's always just a wonderful honor to know that you're listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Yep. Next time. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, 
culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.